Good morning. My name's Ross, I'm one of the pastors here. Good morning to everyone joining us online. So glad that you're here in person as well. Uh, we will be getting to 2 Timothy a bit later. That was my bad. I had planned to open with it, but actually, uh, just in last night, decided to close with it. So we will be there soon. But I'll navigate you along the way. Um, before we get there, welcome. We're on the second week of our series called Reasonable Doubts. The whole idea is that there's these doubts, big faith questions that we may have throughout our life. And last week, we specifically looked at how those actually don't necessarily oppose our faith, but yet are steps along the way of seeking after truth and evidence, which could actually help build our faith in greater ways. If you remember last week, we quoted a guy named Travis Dickinson, a professor, philosopher. He said, doubt isn't our destination, but it's an important step along the way. And that step being there's truth to be seen and unfold. There's, there's evidence to find. And that's where we dug our feet, our heels in deep last week, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, looking at his factual death, burial, resurrection, and appearance before many. And that's what we'll do today as we dive in to the Bible. First uh, Peter three fifteen through sixteen. I want to illuminate uh, to really be on your hearts and minds as we continue. And we referenced this last week in two. In First Peter three fifteen through sixteen, it says this: But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So believers, followers of Jesus, and maybe you aren't there yet to say you professed your faith in Christ. That's okay. Your big questions and doubts, and God is big enough to walk you through them. The same for us as believers. We want to grow in admiration, revering Christ Jesus as Lord being prepared to share, but also with gentleness and respect. And so in two parts, I hope this series continually helps you seek after and and find the evidence, but also build upon within you uh, the evidence and the reason for the hope that you have. And so today we're actually going to be looking at the Word of God. And and many skeptics would wonder and question, how did this Word get to us? Uh, How do we are able to read it today? And what authority and truth does it have for us to live by? And that's what we're going to dive in during our time this morning. So we're going to spend a few moments in some historical context and how the Word got delivered to us today to read not only by God's divine uh, will, but also by the way it was transcribed, transmitted to us today. But also, what does Jesus say about it? Because I think today we need to hold true that Jesus is fully the Son of God, God in the flesh. And so what he has to say about this very word, knowing that to be true, should mean a lot to us. And then finally, my hope is that you leave with encouragement um, on the fact that if we believe it to be true, we we trust it to be transmitted to us correctly, then we can actually live by the very words today. And so let me pray before we dive in too deep. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for all my friends who aren't on this journey of growing to know you more. God, just seeking after you. And I pray as we open your word and today, look to the Bible and how it historically got to our hands. 
Uh, God, we can only look to that as first and foremost, by your goodness, it's to us uh, that we may read it and, and soak up your truth. But God, there's some moments that you just designed it to be delivered to us, and I just thank you for that. And so as we just hold your word um, to the truth we know, may we um, grow in the evidence and truth we find today um, to, to just show the evidence of how we have hope in you and that it's true. But also to my friends who might have more questions, that it would start the beginning of a step of doubt or big questions that we would continue to seek after evidence moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, it is a period of civil war. Rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base have won their first victory against the evil galactic empire. And yet you're immediately put back in the place of Star Wars, episode four. These are the words of George Lucas, and maybe you were one of the few that got to see that in theater. Or maybe you still have that VHS tape at your home today that you need to be kind and rewind. And maybe you have it on DVD or watch it on Disney Plus, whatever it could be. These are the words of George Lucas. And what's wildly so interesting about this story is, as you know, Luke goes to meet Vader, I'm your father, sorry to spoil it, all this kind of stuff. And what we read here sends us on this thrilling, wild adventure that we know to be wildly fiction. We know it to be thought up, to not be true. George Lucas wouldn't take offense to that because it's imagination and can send us into imaginative thoughts and ideas. But yet, what about the Bible? See, often skeptics will point to the idea that is the Bible true fact or fiction? Maybe today we could start with a passage in Luke to really help us wrap our mind around the way the Bible was written and conclude on a point together today. So we're going to be in Luke 3, 1 through 2. Uh, Star Wars, the great movies, um, by, you know, by the way, uh, there's like 20 of them, I feel like, these days. You know, you look up one way and there's another one, you know, another one, all that kind of stuff. So we're going to be in Luke 3, 1 through 2. Um, Luke was this physician, a companion of Paul, Colossians tells us, and we see him writing this specific note. He says this in Luke 3, 1 through 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ateria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Sapphias, the word of God came to John of Zechariah in the wilderness. And my first pause is to see, man, we could really still do better with names, you know, in our world today. These are such great names. But as we dig deeper and we think on the fact of, is it fictional like Star Wars? I would be hesitant to say no. I mean, hesitant meaning, yes, no, there's nothing like it. It's completely different. Because if we have some students in the room, you're beginning to contextualize your who, what, when, and where. That would point you to the historical data on which the context was being written about. If we go quickly through that who, we're talking Caesar and Pilate and Herod and Philip. And the what, the word of God delivered to John. And the when, the 15th year during priesthoods of this person or that, Judea and Galilee, the where. And we see the rich historical context in which Luke is describing being written before us today. And so as we see two varying accounts, we must conclude that this is so much close like, to truth. 
in historical context. This is actually truthful moments being transcribed to us in historical reference that sources outside the Bible can historically confirm, concluding with us that the Bible's about real people in a real place at a real time in history, given accounts of God's goodness and his mercy, his grace, his healings, and all these amazing moments that we see of Jesus' life recorded through the Gospels that Luke so proudly, proudly cites in moments of history. See, similar to the way we look at Jesus' life and we look at those historical moments and even references of, of historians that would cite Jesus to be a real living be- human being, that he actually died and appeared, rose again. Similar so in Luke. But say we can conclude that the, the Bible records accurate historical information, but yet skeptics could also question how it was passed down to us today. And that's what we'll spend a chunk of our time just giving you some, some ideas, some arguments that I believe uh, are, are fully convinced me and should us as believers of the transmission to be trustworthy and true. Um, and first, we'll start with this idea of sacred duty. See, if you think on history, the printing press and how we know it wasn't actually invented until the 15th century. And in this time, you know, before it, you needed to copy things by hand. But this was no just like random person. Do you need to to do something? Yeah, I'll just do whatever. It was a sacred duty to copy the scriptures by hand. See, scribes would have the original scriptures as written and begin to copy them in sequence and charts and, 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 and specific sequence to ensure their accuracy brought to us today. Each letter and phrase and word brought before scrutiny to make sure its accuracy It immediately put me in this place of remembering my elementary years. And when that teacher would reprimand me and discipline me by the form of writing sentences. I don't know if we have any teachers in the room that 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 happened with or any moments. Maybe you yourself. And I don't think we do this now uh, in in the school systems we have now. But when I was in fourth or fifth grade specifically, if I were to be acting out in class and talking out of my turn, the teacher would assign me sentences by the way of discipline. And what were those sentences primarily? Well, she would say, okay, Ross, um, well, first I would be disciplined, so I'd be, I'd be talking out of turn. Hey, Ross, quiet down or you're going to get a hundred sentences. Okay, I'm good. I'll keep talking. I mean, that sounds fine. You know, okay, 200. But 300. Okay. 400. Okay. Okay, what do you want me to do, you know? And I get in that moment. But, but really, what these sentences are described to do as punishment was for me to write a phrase that would remind me of what I've been disciplined by. So the phrase would go something like this. I, Ross, um, will not talk out of turn uh, and should grow to respect Miss Whomever more, or something like that. There were more, much more probably great phrases than that, but anyways. And so in my ideal mind, I'm a smart fourth and fifth grader, that I would look at these phrases and say, huh, what is the quickest way I can complete all of these sentences? I can write the one word 200 times, 300 times in a row, fast, go to the next word, the next word, because writing out the full sentence is kind of hard. So you could see me in the back of class writing I, 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 200, 300 times, Ross, 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 all this 200, 300 times, you know, until the very end. But remember specifically in fourth grade, my teacher was so passionate about this discipline method 
that I would bring my paper fulfilled. 300 sentences. Here we go. She will look intently. Say, this is too messy. You've got to restart. Like, what? Okay, I'll go again. This I looks like an L. You need to redo, right? The scrutiny under which the accuracy must have been done from teacher to me was similar in the way of sacred duty. But even furthermore, that the scrutiny and accuracy to every word and phrase transcribed correctly was of utmost importance. And get this, if one word or phrase was to be found wrong or incorrect in transmission, the complete copy of work would be destroyed and thrown away, assuming more errors could have occurred. And so now we see the beauty in which sacred transmission shows us the pathway in which we can rely on the word we have today. And I might have dated myself. I don't know. That was the, that was the 90s, early 2000s. That was like the best times. You know, it's so fun. Greater times ahead, you know. But let's go ahead and dive into another, um, another just argument that some skeptics might bring up, and it's, it's the missing originals. When we think of the missing originals that we unfortunately don't have uh, any of the original context. And so Sean McDowell builds this argument that, that's rather appealing I wanted to share with you today. And it goes something along the lines of this. And, and Sean McDowell, he's an amazing apologist, um, defender of the faith, incredible, has great resources, would encourage you to read them. He just uh, released a book that I got this last week, actually, um, Reasons for Jesus, something like that. Uh, incredible, incredible work. But he phrases this argument in this way in context to how do we then hold up in the missing original argument that skeptics would have. If you miss the originals, nothing can be right. It says this, imagine the original copy of the United States Constitution was destroyed in a fire. Does that mean the exact wording is lost forever? No, by no means. Think about how many copies have been made over time. Whether they are printed copies, reproduced from textbooks, there are so many copies to compare that even if we lost the original Constitution, we can know with confidence what the original truly said. And he concludes with his argument saying that's the same truth of the Bible. Seeing these copies and relevance and how they were copied and transmitted correctly by the same idea we know that the scriptures we have before us and the, and the meanings of the way they've been copied is accurately true for us to read today. But let's go a bit deeper before we then back up and look to what Jesus says, because that's super important. Let's look at the manuscript evidence just for a moment. See, when discussing reliable ancient texts, we need to keep a few things in mind really quickly. One is when it was originally written. The second being uh, the date of the oldest book, and then the third being the number of copies available or, or at hand of the manuscript. So let's look at some works kind of in comparison, then we'll look specifically at the New Testament for a pause, and then we'll get into the words of Jesus. Um, let's start with uh, Caesar's uh, Gallic Wars, which was composed between 58 and 50 BC. There are about 260 known manuscripts, and only nine or 10 are in good condition the oldest being about 900 years later than when Julius Caesar lived. But let's think of like Homer. Uh, he lived around 900 BC, and one of his famous works, the Iliad or the Odyssey, you know, we read those in high school, or at least I did at some point. You may have known those works. Um, 
Specifically in these, the earliest copies of the Iliad dates back to 14, 415 BC and giving a time span of nearly 500 years between its original date when we have it. And there are over 1,900 ancient copies of this work. But let's go ahead and look at the Bible in, in a similar context. And we can say scholars would generally look at these works and, and, and hold up their historical accuracy. Let's look at the Bible, though. In the New Testament specifically, written between AD 40 and AD 100, the earliest existing fragment is from roughly AD 125, so a 25-year uh, period between some earliest findings and, and what we know is this completion of the earliest copy we have. And how many copies were found? Nearly 24,000. Homer's Iliad came in second at the 1900 mark. And so you see this sacred duty and copies upon copies of accurately transcribing and transmitting that the word of God was important. And I think when, when I think on that historical data, I think on just the hand of God moving his word for you, forward. I think of the work of God to, to enable his servants, his people to copy his word accurately so we may read it today. But like I said, let's jump in to the words of Jesus, because after all, we've discovered he's the true son of God. He vindicated that claim by rising from the grave. So his words have to matter. They truly do. What does he say about the scriptures? So then let's go to the gospels. We're gonna, I'm going to kind of frame out some of his sayings. I'm going to list out some passages that we don't have time to get into specifically today, but write them down, read them this week. Uh, for further study, I would encourage you. Um, these are some statements of Jesus um, that he upheld in the Old Testament as he walked on earth. Um, he said this in Mark 7, 13, that scripture, the Bible, is the word of God. Matthew 15, 3, the commandment of God. John 10, 35, it could not be broken. Matthew 5, 18, could not be destroyed. John 17, 17 is the truth. Luke 16, 31 is sufficient for faith and holy living. Beyond Jesus' amazing statements upholding the truth, validity, but also authority of the word of God, I think we ought to jump into a scenario where Jesus interacted with the very word of God. We're going to go to Matthew 4, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It's a really interesting uh, moment, challenging one for Jesus in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And just to let you know, we're still getting to 2 Timothy, okay? If you have the earmarked, we're going to get there. We'll get there. But we're going to start in Matthew 4 before we do. Let's start here in, in verse 1, Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift up your hands so that you will not strike your foot against stone. Verse 7, Jesus answered them, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Verse 10, Jesus said, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. These statements by Jesus and why it's so uniquely important we cling on to um, Jesus' words in the scripture, but also the way that Jesus walked with the scripture here. Because a few things are just illuminating to me in the way he was being tempted, tempted by Satan. And you see these phrases, Satan said uh, in verse three, 3, the tempter came to him, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. That act is doable by God. He could do that. But yet, Jesus' response is rooted in the scriptures. For it is written, Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's quoting Deuteronomy specifically. And continuing these consistent attacks by Satan, right? If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus answers in verse 7, do not put your Lord God to the test. Another mention of the Holy Scriptures, which Jesus is, is walking and living by. Finally, if you will bow down and worship me, right? In verse 10, what does he say? Away from me, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Another moment where Jesus upholds the teachings and scriptures of God the Father. See, Jesus in the way of walking through this temptation from Satan is upholding the truth that the word of God is true. But also the words of God are to be lived by. That in his own testimony, his own actions are living by the very word of God through temptation. The word of his heavenly father. The word of him in the flesh coming to save humanity. To offer salvation to us through his very body and blood. He know that to be true. But yet lives by the truth of the word sent to him from God. That inspires me. I feel like when we face temptations or trials in our life, if we're able to be put in a moment to seek after him and remember his true word and live by it alone, goodness, that inspires me, encourages me so deeply that, that Jesus sets this example before us just in this passage. Later, we could even, that he's referencing the Old Testament, um, argue then that in John 16, verse 12, Jesus is with his disciples and, and delivers this moment talking of the Holy Spirit to come to them. And this is what's inspired to be the New Testament, New Testament to be written soon to be. In verse 12, specifically in John 16, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of the truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he, that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. And that is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. See, Jesus is beginning to, before his ascension into heaven, he's, he's about to die on the cross, um, soon to be. And the disciples are then to be inspired to continue sharing his word and writing much of what the New Testament we know today, even as far as Paul, um, delivering words to Paul to write to us through a lot of the old New Testament that we know today. And so we see this, this, this really, really important reflection in Jesus, the very Son of God, 
walking through and living life according to the scriptures by which he was sent, but also sending ahead scriptures to be inspired and written. So how might we look at these scriptures in the last few minutes we have today and the way of life-giving authoritative life we could live? Um, I want to tell a quick story just as I was thinking on this. Before I started dating Noel, I used to go to the gym two times a day. And I know you can tell. Thank you. Thank you. Online, they say it takes 10 pounds down. Thank you for doing that. But, but all in all, we would go two times a day. And throughout this, I went with friends. And so I didn't have a hired trainer or anything like that. But there were friends who knew more than me. And so they would naturally train and criticize me and, and really put me to the test. Before I met my wife, like she would sometimes frequent the gym when I did. And so I would get behind weights and like stack them up real heavy that I couldn't lift and just like to impress her, you know. They're like, no, I was coming, no, I was coming. I'm like, okay, okay, let me deadlift this thing. Ready? One, two, three. And I was, ah! And then they'd be like, you know, sometimes they'd be like, just kidding, just kidding. Good rep, good rep. And I'm like, dude, I'm doing this for her, you know. Like that's my whole point. It was really for my health, but all in all. And sometimes she would come by and I would try to impress her. And we were in this, we were in this phase, you know, that um, I would wave to her, hey, Noel, and she'd just give me a peace sign and walk by. And I was like, sweet, love you, I love you, I think, you know, work, I want to love you, you know, stuff like that, right? So this whole process of, you know, college life, you know, if many of you have been there, you feel that. Um, but all in all, these, these friends of mine became my trainers, Effectively, they were put in places to criticize me, to point me to what was right, to help edify uh, my mind, to do uh, workouts correctly, to gain these muscles, uh, you know, quickly in my mind, but adequately maybe. And, I, and immediately as we were conclude, as I wanted to conclude today in Second Timothy, thought of this passage uh, as an inspiration for us for how we can look at the scriptures to do the very same for our life. If we look at 2 Timothy 3, 16, it says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I think of the way that Jesus has upheld Scriptures, not only the Old Testament, but to be delivered to the New Testament we see today as, as Jesus lived by the very Word of God uh, in this temptation moment and, and illuminating the truth of God's Word before the tempter Satan. I think of the very way God breathed this Word into life for us to read directly from Him. That it's God breathed Scripture to be written useful for teaching and rebuking, right? That criticizing, disapproval, correcting and training in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work he has set before us in him. Not for our goodness, we're not good enough. Not for our fame, not for our desires, our will, but solely for his purposes. And I think so vividly we often disconnect the idea, and I, I always want to fight against this, to not write ourselves into the scriptures, but take after and look after the scriptures for how it has been delivered to us, that we may live by it and become obedient, that we may seek, seek and, and walk through it and, and, and survive and with last temptation, that we may live by the very authoritative words of God because they are true, transmitted, scribed to us from years ago that we can hold today. I think if we as Hope Church were to grasp that very true nature of God's word and how powerful it can be 
to not only be applied, but, but read through and walked through, we would do so good with Jesus. I think of this, and I thought of a pastor who said this. I need to figure out who to cite it correctly. But when I think of the Word of God, you know, when I was in those training moments, it was painful. Like, I'm just lifting things. They're too heavy for me to impress a girl or just trying to really, you know, do all this stuff. It was painful. But, but when I think of the Word of God and as we walk through it, and that teaching, rebuking, the edifying, correcting pieces of the Word of God we find, we feel that similar pain that we need to change. And I thought of it, um, and as I heard it from a pastor, this very, I thought of this phrase to be very, very true, that the words of Scripture, the, the command of the Lord should be like this healing ointment instead of this stinging wound. This healing ointment of truth and life-giving instead of a stinging wound that feels like a slashing and a shame. That what if we were to look at the Scriptures and, and, and obey the commands to know that it gives us life? Instead of the opposite. So my friends, I encourage you to maybe today, leaving today, look at the word differently. As the beautiful word, God-breathed word for you to read today, walk through today, and be delivered to life. So would you stand with me as we pray and conclude our service together? I'm going to invite these awesome students to come out. They're going to close us in song as well, but I'll close in prayer. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for your truth uh, and the truth of Jesus, God, that, that by his blood, his body, we are set free. Uh, we are found, we find salvation in you by our faith and trust and belief. And God, I just thank you for that. Lord, I pray as we look at your word and understand it to be true and accurately uh, sent to, for us to read today. God, I pray that you would inspire us to read it, to actually read it and soak it in, that we may be compelled to feel it as a healing ointment instead of a stinging wound, that, God, we would trust you with our life, so much so that we would obey your commands, and we can trust your word to lead us to life everlasting in you. Continue to edify us, correct us, Lord. Show us the path where we need to turn back and, and repent, but where we need to run forward in obedience, God. Show us that through your word and by your spirit. Thank you for the grace that you offer us to allow us to walk with you here on earth. God, we